it's desperately understaffed and and you know we can we could give you many examples of people who are either stuck in hospital or struggling at home or families are struggling at home to care for their loved one because there are not enough carers on the island editor of Bailiwick Express. While we were all on lockdown, shielding ourselves from the effects of coronavirus last year, one group continually put itself in the line of fire. With a smile on their faces, nurses and carers continued to venture out into the community, providing assistance to people of all backgrounds, ranging from elderly people to those with mental health conditions and young and vulnerable parents and families. It wasn't an easy task. In the early stages of the pandemic, there were difficulties with government communications and struggles to get the right PPE. Then there was the emotional impact on the workforce. There are further challenges on the horizon, not least an emerging recruitment crisis intensified by low salaries and the rising cost of living locally. But there are opportunities for innovation too, as the island looks to reshape the way it does healthcare. To get a greater understanding of the current status of the sector, I invited Family Nursing and Home Care's Operational Lead of Adult Services, Tia Hall, to the Bailiwick Studio to discuss those challenges and opportunities. She spoke about caring in a pandemic and the rise of telehealth, the call-out for carers and the joy of helping others. She firstly gave us an insight into the charity's work. Family Nursing and Home Care is a charity that's been on the island for more than 100 years. Um, We're the main provider of community nursing services for the island of Jersey. Um, And those services cover from pre-birth to end of life. So we have health visitors and um, school nursing services. We've got baby steps and breastfeeding support services children's community nursing teams and then moving into our adult services we've got district nurses and rapid response and we also have a home care service so that care at home. My role is um, I'm the operational lead for adult nursing services and that's basically supporting the clinical leaders to manage the service every day. I'm a clinician, I'm a nurse by background and moved into management. Take us back to the beginning of the pandemic when things first started kicking off. Obviously, it was very alien to everyone, a lot to Mm -hmm. adapt to in a very short space of time. When did you first start recognising that something serious was going on and what was the reaction of the charity? So I think we all heard the news reports, watched it on the the, um, news reports in the evening and sort of it seemed like a world problem then. Um, But sometimes in Jersey, you can feel quite isolated from the rest of the world. And I think we recognise that it would eventually come to Jersey, but how it would affect us and what we would do was probably a bit more of an unknown quantity. Um, I think one the the first time we heard was when um, there was a government announcement around looking at um, planning to lock down. And so we looked at our services that we were delivering. Um, it came out over a weekend, and we, I do remember going up to the Broad Street office on a Saturday um, and meeting with other, other providers from education, health, across the whole island, and talking about how we can support people to continue to receive the services that they have done in, in the beginning. I think... We were all, it was all a bit of an unknown. I mean, I've never nursed through a pandemic in my life before, but we do have a certain amount of preparedness for it. 
initially the concerns around the PPE and um, the the sort of international problems with getting appropriate PPE um, that filtered down and obviously made staff and 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 people feel quite nervous and anxious about what this meant for our services. But I think we probably quickly adapted because actually our services continued throughout the whole of the pandemic. So we were still delivering nursing in people's homes. Our staff were just having to wear more PPE, undertaking more risk assessments. And it, it, it allowed us that opportunity to look at different ways of delivering services. So let's just look at that process of adaptation. So as you mentioned, PPE was obviously something really important. How did you go about acquiring what must have been quite a vast amount? Initially, I mean, each health organisation would have held a certain amount of PPE anyway. Our staff would normally wear gloves and aprons to do a lot of the nursing care that they do. But we recognised that we needed much more of that. Um, So in the very early days, I have to say it was a bit sort of beg, borrow and steal, if you like, really. And um, we had a a good relationship with the hospital supplies. So we would go up there and get supplies. I do recall going up to the TA centre and getting masks and gloves on a Saturday and they were great they delivered a surreal going up there (laughs) it was really odd actually it was a very odd situation so we managed to sort of get everything together in in the place that we needed to and then um in time the government set up a PPE cell which has been absolutely amazing really to make sure that we get the supplies through that we need and those supplies have changed so the types of masks that staff would have to wear if they're dealing with people of COVID. The supply chain of that has been quite difficult. Uh, Interestingly, my understanding is a lot of the PPE supplies were made in China. So originally those supply chains were very difficult. And so we've been able to adapt to those changes. But having said that, I think the the PPE cell that's still running at the moment um, was an excellent approach to it. Um, That is coming to an end. I understand at the end of the year and organisations are going to have to look at funding models for funding their own PPE going forward but certainly you know for the last year really it's been a great source of help for our staff really and we've never really had a problem with PPE supplies. And just to contextualise that for people I mean what kind of volumes do you need to carry out your services? So I would say that we would probably be getting through maybe 60 boxes of face masks a week, aprons, hundreds and hundreds of aprons a day, gloves, and the visors that people would wear for the splash risk, probably less so, but huge volumes of it. And I suppose one of the things that always worried me is, what does that look in terms of the environment with that amount of plastic going back into the environment. So I think that's certainly something that we should be thinking about in the future, looking at those um, companies that may produce biodegradable um, equipment that would break down much easier. So that's always been a worry, really. At that very early stage, what kind of communication were you having with government and how, how did that relationship pan out over time? I think we all got better at communicating. I think... I was a little bit concerned that Facebook seemed to be the method of communication not many people would access, certainly from our older population wouldn't access Facebook. So I think the information was a bit sporadic at the beginning, but 
now we're at a stage where we get regular communications and certainly within family nursing we had a daily COVID meeting um, because the information was changing every day, the guidance was changing every day, so we had to keep on top of that really. And we made a conscious decision to have one source of information to all of the staff because people will hear lots of different things on the news or, very, you know, they would read it from various different sources, from social media. And we wanted to make sure that our staff were getting the correct information as we knew it at the time. That may well have changed a week later. but So we followed all of the sort of Public Health England, the NHS guidance around PPE and um, how services should continue to be delivered. So our child and family services were um, guided by Public Health England. Our district nursing services were guided by NHS guidance on community nursing. So we, we wanted to make sure that we had one source of information. And in terms of the continuity of those services, naturally they couldn't just stop in the pandemic. Mm. You would have had to make adaptations. Can you give us some examples of how you maybe tweaked your services? Certainly from a community nursing perspective, we had some people that were afraid to let the nurses into their home. They were, th- they were worried that they were going to bring COVID with them. Um, so we worked quite well with a number of people who wanted to self-care. So we would make sure that they had the, the right dressings and equipment that they would need. They would take photographs on their phone and email them to us. And our nurse would contact them regularly to sort of review the progress of the wounds. So that was a really good example. I think another good example is we work really closely with the residential home providers and the care home and the home care providers um, and did the same thing. So we had shared care plans with them. We made sure that we had regular conversations with the managers from those services. And actually, we've continued somewhat going forward with that. I think from our child and family services, there was a lot more focus on making sure that we really focused our services on those most vulnerable children who potentially could have been hidden during a a pandemic. So we would be engaged in a daily health safeguarding meeting with all health providers to look not specifically at specific cases, but actually how services were being delivered so that there wasn't that sort of duplication of services so that we would all work seamlessly. So a lot of those examples have continued now into the future. So when you mention um, safeguarding, for example, what kind of things did you have to think about to make sure that vulnerable children or or maybe vulnerable adults as well were protected during this time? So I think it was that using those good communication systems maybe with the police, so when when we're aware of domestic abuse and how that can be hidden and how that could possibly increase during COVID when everybody was in lockdown. So really good communication, making sure that where there needed to be contacted, contact with um, families and children, that actually the most appropriate person was in touch with them, um, that they had all of the um, numbers that they needed should they require help, and just reassuring people that actually services were still there. We hadn't all just gone away. That's a really interesting point you make about the kind of contact you might have with the police, for example. I think a lot of people might not realise that family and nursing home care Mm -hmm. also have this kind of safety element um, to your work as well. So I think in all services, when when you look at police, education, health, 
we would all say the same thing that safeguarding is everybody's business and so it's not that none of us would ever work in isolation because we recognize that there's a whole community all of these services wrapped around children and adults who may well be at risk so that's where we've always had really good communication systems anyway. But these certainly came front and centre during COVID. Just uh, reflecting a bit on also how your service had to adapt, you had to take on some cases that might have otherwise been in the hospital. So how did you deal with that? I think initially, and, and possibly quite rightly, there was a big focus on keeping the hospital clear, making sure that the hospital wasn't overwhelmed. And so a lot of those services stopped. So people who may have gone to the hospital for a follow-up, for somebody to have a look at their wound, would have been referred to family nursing much earlier than they probably would have done before, really. So I think, and it was about reassuring people that actually, if they were waiting for an appointment that may have been delayed, that we were still there supporting them, offering advice, being able to liaise with consultants on their behalf. So even though their appointment may not have taken place, we would always have those those contacts with the hospital staff, just to reassure people. Going forward, I mean, obviously, you you did a lot of adapting during the pandemic. And you mentioned before, for example, like the the self-care plans that you kind Mm. of put in place. A lot of that you've been able to take forward. What else have you taken forward and and learnt from the pandemic Mm -hmm. that you want to develop further? Yeah, I think there's um, we need to be starting to look more at telehealth and people work in different ways now. You know, we we now much more flexible in how our staff work. The issue is we need to make sure they've got the right equipment to be able to deliver those services. We've initially had issues around um, virtual meetings, being able to access those. So that's something that we need to address going forward to make sure that we've got good IT support, digital support to help our nurses deliver care in a different way. And I think certainly with the Jersey Care model, there is a lot of focus on telehealth, exploring different ways of working. And this is a good opportunity for us to perhaps reset and go back and say, actually, does the Jersey Care model work with how we know services could work in the future? How do you see yourself fitting into the care model? Mm -hmm. Um, What kind of services would you like to be providing under that? And are there any areas that you'd like to see improved further? Currently, we host the Rapid Response and Reablement team. They work very closely with our district nursing service to actually get people out of hospital much sooner than they they would have done in the future. I think certainly the focus should be on trying to reduce the number of people that actually go into the hospital. So that working very closely with the GPs at home to reduce the admission rate rather than allowing somebody to go into hospital, which presents a number of risks while you're in hospital anyway, we all know those, but actually bring getting people so that they don't have to go into hospital but that requires a lot more funding around there'll be uh, a need for more care staff at home so if you went into hospital you'd have 24-hour care in your own home you may not need 24-hour care but you do need somebody to who's able to come in maybe make your lunch for you help you have a wash so whilst you're receiving nursing care you also need to receive care at home 
That's a really interesting point you make because we haven't really spoken a lot on an island level about those other types of caring, Mm. these kind of non-medical pieces of care. So how well staffed is that kind of area at the moment and how much do you think it needs to grow to meet the needs of the Mm. care model? It's desperately understaffed and, and, you know, we can... We could give you many examples of people who are either stuck in hospital or struggling at home or families are struggling at home to care for their loved one because there are not enough carers on the island. I think one of the issues is that it's fairly poorly paid. Um, You know, Jersey has, people may or may not agree with this, but Jersey has a population that is fairly well paid in a lot of jobs. And so working in the care home sector and having to work probably more on social hours, the pay needs to reflect that. But also I think the pay needs to reflect the skills and competencies that go with that group of staff. They're not just in making lunch, they're in there listening, watching, sensing how somebody is. And people will often open up to carers and, and tell carers what their concerns are more than they will sort of traditional medical and nursing staff really. So I think we, you know, we need to invest in the carers of the future and we need to make it a profession. When you talk about the pay, for example, what, what's the answer to that? Is it asking care homes on an individual level to pay more? Is, would it be government grants, subsidies, that kind of thing mm-hmm. you think would be helpful? I think we need to recognise really that there needs to be a pay scale and a career progression for carers. So people will come into care from various backgrounds. I'm always amazed when somebody says, oh, I've come from the finance industry and I want to do something different. You know, it would be a big drop in salary for people. But we need to be able to have the right amounts of of support and training for these staff to get them up to the level where they are professional carers. And therefore, there needs to be that funding. If we want the Jersey care model, then we have to fund care properly in the community. Just thinking about the training that goes alongside that, I mean, is Jersey equipped enough to be able to train up people? I think so, certainly. I mean, we can give you very good examples in um, out because we have a home care service so we have had carers that have initially coming from our home care service with no previous background in care we've trained them and supported them through the rqf care modules and now we have some of those care staff who are working alongside our nursing teams and they're doing quite a lot of the complex nursing work that only nurses ever used to do you know we have um Carers who are taking blood, putting cannulas in for to give people IV fluids, putting catheters in. And those people have come through that process over the years. And so I would say that actually we're best placed to train those people. To what extent does the cost of living and difficulties around sourcing accommodation play into the difficulties with sourcing enough carers to meet mm. all the needs of the community? It is very difficult, isn't it, really? And not just for care staff. So, I, you know, often we recruit nurses from the UK and they look at the salary and think, mm, that's quite a good salary compared to the UK and our salary structure is different. But as soon as they start looking into the housing costs or childcare costs, they it puts them off. And actually, people are probably driven more towards those industries and those workplaces where their salary will give them a decent cost of uh, standard of living. 
So you've actually had examples of people that have shown their interest yeah. and then actively turned away after yeah. seeing that. And I must admit, I initially, when I initially have those first discussions, I do try and put people off a little bit because I want them to know the very real challenges that they're going to face. And eventually, you know, we have been very successful. Certainly in family nursing, we are probably nearly fully staffed. And I think that's testament to the fact that people recognise that you need good carers and nurses in the community. And that's the sort of future of health and care in Jersey. I suppose uh, to some extent it's not just about the recruiting, but it's also about retaining the the excellent Mm. carers that you do manage to keep. I mean, how can we keep hold of the the good people that are recruited? Mm -hmm. So I think it's about giving them those opportunities to think and work in a different way, to move out of those traditional boundaries where we say nurses do this and carers do this. We need to think about um, using those skills and expertise that people either bring on to the island or have on the island and look at different ways of working. Is there a question of also considering the well-being of the health and care community? I know, for example, the pandemic has obviously been very traumatic for the whole population, but in particular, it must have been for those that have worked in the health and care sector. I think we underestimate really the impact of COVID on health and care and those essential staff who kept going, had to keep going to work. And we do find now that we've sort of got a, a bit of a dip I think, where people are exhausted. However, I think what it's allowed us to do is explore different support mechanisms that we can use to support our staff. So we offer our staff TRIM, which is a a programme that is able to support staff after traumatic episodes, but also a straw model, which is around helping people to continue to do a good job every day. So sometimes how can you come to work and do your best job when you're feeling really tired and also quite anxious yourself. You're anxious about your own health, you're anxious about your own family. So our role has been about supporting staff in the background to make sure that they've got the right messages, to let them know that actually we're supporting them and we wouldn't want to put them into a a difficult situation that's going to threaten their health or well-being. And so I think all organisations have have recognised the importance of valuing and, and caring for their staff. Whilst we care for other people, we need to care for each other. Tell me a bit more about some of those supportive programmes that are now in place for them to help mm-hmm. build them back up again if they are struggling. So um, I know there's a lot of well-being strategies, certainly in the hospital, that staff can access around just having a 10-minute conversation with somebody, perhaps meeting with somebody that you've not had contact with before to discuss how work is going, you know, what what challenges you've experienced. So we certainly, we've done a lot of training with our uh, some of our clinical staff and some of the managers around having those quick 10-minute conversations, but to make them real. It's not counselling for people. We, we don't offer counselling, but it's about saying, actually, we know this is really hard. Talk to us about it and let's see how we can work it out. Obviously, staff well-being is uh, something that's come out of COVID as a big kind of conversation point, but I'm sure there are other impacts that you felt as a result of the pandemic, things that still need to be resolved. I just want to move back to the topic of PPE that you mentioned earlier. Mm. You said that the cell will be coming to an end and that you'll have to be looking at sourcing your own, but obviously the pandemic, it's not completely over. No. So 
is that something that financially you can meet? Well, I mean, those discussions need to be had, really. It's certainly not us as, just us as an organisation, but I know the home care providers and the residential home providers, this was never originally in our budget, so we do need to start looking at those. And it may well be that, um, we, well, we will definitely need to continue with PPE as we are at the moment. Um, I can't envisage that that would change in the future. So that does have to be part of those budget discussions in the future. And I think another impact on a lot of services is increasing insurance rates because of those risks associated with delivering care face-to-face with people. So again, those need to come out and be considered as part of that fiscal planning in the future. And how much of a burden are those insurance rates likely to be? Uh, My understanding is they've been quite high. Um, And I know there are even some insurance providers that um, have said that they're not going to offer insurance. I know that's been a a real challenge. And and it's certainly something we would discuss. We have a community bronze meeting twice a week with... um, health and community services and those are issues that we discuss on a regular basis. So are you likely to ask government for some support in meeting those? Yes that would be part of that financial planning going forward that needs to be taken into consideration because the world has changed in terms of risk and you know quite rightly insurance companies were saying well you know they they didn't really plan for that risk really Um, so yeah it certainly needs to be part of that discussion in the future. Just moving back um, onto the topic of recruitment, we know that the government recently reached into its COVID economy stimulation pot, the uh, Fiscal Stimulus Fund, and pulled out 620,000 to um, help recruit 100 new staff Mm -hmm. into the care sector. Can you tell us a bit more about um, this project and also, you know, the the types of members of the community that that those who go into the sector might work with? I think there's perhaps a bit of a perception that it's it's all about the elderly when, Mm -hmm. in fact, I know, as you've mentioned, we've got a very broad remit. We do. So um, we have uh, care teams who look after uh, children and young people, up to the elderly. Um, So there's a range of backgrounds that our care staff come from. Um, They're in a range of ages as well, actually. You know, it's from young people to people that are married and perhaps want, just want um, evening work to work around their partners, hours. So those people will come into uh, the care sector and with the fiscal stimulus there's funding for their training, there's funding for their initial shadowing because that's quite a heavy burden. None of the care providers and certainly not family nursing, we wouldn't allow those new care staff to just go out and deliver care. They need to get to know the person they need to get to know what their care needs are and also that person needs to get to know them to trust them that when they come back on their own that they're able to deliver the care safely and how long a process is that of building up that trust and getting to know the person in their needs i would say it's at least six to eight weeks so initial couple of weeks training so we would do a lot of the training around the use of ppe about writing in people's records, about preserving people's dignity when you're helping them have a wash, 
and then there would be shadow and opportunities with senior carers just to make sure that people understand the care plans understand what their role is and understand and as I said before people will often open up to carers and tell them about things that they're concerned about and allow so we would support our carers to have those supportive discussions with people to make sure that their fears and anxieties are addressed appropriately and so finally do you think people have any misconceptions about working within the sector and and tell us why you'd encourage people to get involved in the sector i think it's coming from a nursing background myself it's it's a role that allows you to work with people um And people will come in all guises. So we will work with a range of people, people that are perhaps um, maybe a bit grumpy sometimes, maybe very happy sometimes. But actually our role is to support them to live the life that they want to live in their home. And there is a reward in that in as much as that you can go home at the end of the day and actually know you've made a difference. You you really have made a difference. So I think it's really important for people to look on the care side as not a sort of a second-class job. It is a it's a, an actual privilege, really, to help people and that somebody allows you into their home and allows you to sometimes get quite close to them really so I think at the end of the day people do reflect on the day and in the main it's been a good day. Tia Hall thank you. We'll be continuing to report on the challenges and opportunities facing the care sector and you can find all the latest updates on bailiwickexpress.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast please share it with your friends colleagues and on social would really appreciate it. The opening music which you'll hear again in a second was I Shift My Weight by Luno. More next week from me Fiona Potney and the Bailiwick Express team.